We are in, in this series called The Story, and uh, today it's participatory, so I'm going to invite a few of you to come up here to help me uh, preach this message in some different capacities to kind of be prepared. If I call on you or point at you, just come on up, and you'll be live on television. Millions of people worldwide will be, I'm just having a great, great time, but we're continuing, thank you so much, honey, I appreciate it. We're continuing uh, in this series called The Story. The Story is a book that is a compilation of the New International Version of the Bible. If you don't have your copy of the story yet, you can pick it up. There's some at the back table in the connect corner over there. If you're watching online and you don't have a copy, you can pick it up on Amazon or you can call the church office and you can stop by and pick one up here at the Lathrop campus or the Modesto campus. We'll have those available for you. But we want you to read one chapter every week. And for this week, you should have read chapter three. As a reminder, this is not a replacement of the Bible. This is a resource that resources you with as you read your Bible. It's not the entire Bible, but it takes us through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order in kind of a novel format so that we can understand the big picture of the Bible. And so we're studying this from August until Easter. Next Sunday, you get a chance to, we're going to continue in chapter four of the story, uh, but you get a chance to hear from our youth, our network youth director. Uh, Michael is going to share next Sunday. It's going to be phenomenal on Saturday night and Sunday, and he's going to be teaching on chapter four. So make sure you read chapter four. It's a powerful time, uh, and uh, he is going to bring a, a great word. So we're praying for you, Michael. I know you're watching. They don't happen to be here today. They were at the River Islands campus, but today is the anniversary. It's a sad day, but it's a, the three-year anniversary of his dad suddenly passing away from an accident. So we, we're praying for you, Michael, as you're with your family in the Bay Area today and uh, trying to be a blessing to them. All right. Well, chapter three. So for chapter three, it's about a new character. And this new character's name is, is Joseph. And, and, and if you're thinking about, first of all, I don't want this to be a history lesson. I want to teach you God's word, but I want to make sure it's relevant, applicable to your life so you can use it in the parking lot. When you get home, it can be something you can use at your workplace throughout the week. So chapter three is about Joseph. Joseph takes up a whole lot of real estate in, in the Bible. In fact, uh, the rest of, most of the rest of the book of Genesis is about the life of Joseph. And Joseph's life begins with a dream. He has well, the story of Joseph begins, begins with a dream. How many of you are familiar uh, with this? This has kind of just gone through, but it's a, it's a children's book set. It's a series of books, and there's a whole lot of them, but it's called Choose Your Own Adventure Books. Anybody ever heard of these before? Now, when I was a kid, I read these Choose Your Own Ad I love these books. They, you know, they've sold more than 250 million copies of these Choose Your Own Adventure books. Like one of them is The Abominable Snowman, A Journey Under the Sea, and Space and Beyond. The the way these books work, they're pretty awesome. The way they work is, um, it says on here, this book or this box contains 150 possible endings to the story. Because when you get to a fork in the road in these choose your own adventure books, you get to decide what you're going to do. So let's say you come into a house on your journey. Well, there's a door on the left and there's a door on the right. And if you choose the door on the left, it says turn to page 23. But if you turn to the, choose the door on the right, it says turn to page 97. So you turn to the page of the choice that you made in your, and, and you get to see where the story takes you. And then there's another choice there and it takes you to a different page and it takes you to a different page. And there's all these different options because you're in charge of your, of your story. For kids, these are very, very popular because you get to choose the ending. You get to avoid disappointment. You get to avoid adversity in your life. But we know as adults, 
we don't necessarily get to choose our own adventure most of the time. As kids, we believe, well, it's all in my hands. We believe that I'm in control. I can do whatever I want to do. I, I, can, I can go wherever my heart's desire takes me. But as adults, we realize that that's not how life works much of the time. Let me put it to you this way. All of us start thinking our story will go a certain way, but it never quite goes how we planned. How many would agree with that? We start off with these, these dreams, and a dream has a way, has a way of waking us, waking us up. A reality, excuse me, has a way of waking us up, which is what we're going to see in the life of this character named Joseph. Joseph, Joseph was the son of a guy named Jacob. And Jacob was the son of, 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 a, of a guy named Isaac. And Isaac was the son of Abraham. So Abraham, who we talked about last week, was Joseph's great, great, uh, was, was, was his great, excuse me, one great, great grandson. And so in Genesis chapter 37, that's where we're at in the story of Joseph. We start with Joseph as a teenager. He's a teenager. He's kind of young. Um, he's from, a, he's about 17 He's from a dysfunctional home with a, capital, with a capital D. It's kind of an understatement. You see, Joseph was his father's favorite. And his father didn't mind letting everybody else in the family know that Joseph was his favorite. Some of y'all parents might say, look at your child, one child number one, child number two, child number and say, you're my favorite. And then you tell the other one, you're my favorite. And my wife does that. You're my favorite. And you're my favorite. And you're my favorite. And everybody hears, you're my favorite. That's one thing. But when you actually have... A favorite, you're causing all kinds of family difficulties and, and struggles and dynamics. So Joseph has these 10 older brothers, and his dad, though, thinks he is his favorite. So what does his dad do? His dad gives him an ornate coat. Hey, you know what, Ashley, would you come up here for just a second? Come on up here, Ashley Gaspar. Yes. So Ashley's going to come up here just as kind of help to me for just a second. I won't, I won't keep you very long, but um, let's, let's just say a Ashley is, is, a, is the role of Joseph because she's about as close as I can get to the age of, of Josephine. And so um, what, what we're, what we're going to do is we're going to put, I don't have a coat of many colors, but I have a Mexican poncho. So we're going to use that instead. So we're going to put this on and this, this is, this is for now, this is representing Joseph. Approximately the age, approximately the age of, I know you're older than that, of course, more, way more mature, but the age of Joseph, who has 10 older brothers. Daddy gives him the coat. Why does daddy give him the coat? Daddy gives him the coat because you're my favorite. Oh, and by the way, because you're my favorite, you don't have to do any chores. You don't have to do any work. You don't have to lift any finger. Your brothers are going to do all the sweat and the labor in the household, and you don't have... By the way, because you're my favorite, your brothers are not getting any inheritance. You're going to get it all. Everything I have belongs to you, and I want you to know that, so this coat I'm giving to you, it's just going to re represent that you're my favorite to everybody, including your 10 older brothers. Wow. It's kind of like if you've got 10 older siblings, all 11 of you run downstairs on Christmas morning and you all open up your present and 10 of the brothers get a bouncy ball and you get a PS4. It's going to cause a problem in the family. The dynamic is going to be very, very difficult. And so what we read in Genesis 37, 4, check it out. It says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him 
and could not speak a kind word to him. So Joseph was hated by his brothers. How many understand we don't get to choose our own story oftentimes because we don't get to choose our own family of origin? We don't get to choose our family. So instead of a house filled with love, Joseph's got a house, according to Scripture, filled with hate. Maybe that hits home with you. Maybe, maybe like Joseph, you grew up in a home where nobody seemed capable of even speaking a kind word. Maybe it was a home of criticism or negativity or harsh tones. But in addition to this house, it's a dysfunctional house, full of hate. This is how dysfunctional it is. Joseph's mom dies when she's giving birth to his younger brother. And living in the home are three of Joseph's stepmoms, all living in the same home together with daddy. How many of y'all know that's a problem, yes? It's gonna, it's gonna cause all kinds of, it's like a bad reality TV program. And so Joseph has, Joseph has this dream. And this dream is a powerful dream. And Joseph tells his brothers the dream. And the dream is, brothers, listen, I had a dream. You're all gonna bow down to me one day. Let me give you some helpful advice. Um, if you are a younger sibling, you might want to write this one down. Should you have a dream of your siblings bowing down to you, keep said dream to yourself. Do not repeat that dream or say that dream out loud. That is your dream. You don't need to be sharing that. But Joseph shares it with his brothers and surprise, his brothers are angry. They're even more angry and they hate him even more than they did before. So here's how the story goes. Jacob sends Joseph in his coat of many colors, which represents the inheritance, the lack of having to work, that he's his daddy's favorite. He sends his, sends his son, Joseph, who's not working in the fields because, well, he doesn't have to, sends him out into the fields where the others are working and they're sweating and they're tired and they're irritable and they're probably hungry. And Joseph comes strolling out in his coat, and here's, here's, I want you to look in the story, the bottom of page 29. If you'll look at the bottom of page 29, please, I want you to listen to what it says. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come, now let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. That's a, that's a dried up well. And, and they'll say that the ferocious animals devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dream. So his brothers are really, really angry. And it goes on in the middle of page 30, if you're looking. Judah said to his brothers, what would we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? you know what, let's just sell him to the Ishmaelites, not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. So his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled up Joseph out of that dried up well, that cistern, and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. That's what they do. May I have the the coat back, please? Let's give it up for Ashley as she goes and have a seat. Thank you very much, Ashley. Bravo. So what they do is they reach down and they pull Joseph out of this well, probably 15 feet down there. They'd already beat him up a little bit, probably threw him down in that thing, jagged rocks on the edges, probably he's all bloodied and hurt and wounded pretty bad. They pull him out of there and uh, they take off his coat of many colors, which represents everything they hate about him. 
They find a goat and they kill the goat and they put the blood of the goat on the, on the, the, the coat. And after they sell their brother into slavery, they take the coat back to daddy and they show it to daddy and they say, take, take a look at this. Dad, Jacob, your favorite son has died. Jacob goes into a deep depression and begins to mourn and begins to grieve the loss, the loss of, his, of his son. Joseph is 17 years old at this time when he's taken into this foreign land. Did you hear that? He's sold as a slave into another country. This is a, another example of human trafficking in the Bible. He's trafficked. He's sold as a slave. And he's sold as a slave into another country, the country of Egypt. And he happens to land in the home of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is like the, the king, the the highest ranking person in the nation. He's sold into Pharaoh's, um, to Pharaoh's, the captain of his bodyguard. Now remember that title, the captain of his bodyguard, because we'll come back to that in just a second. His name is Potiphar. So he sold to Potiphar, and Potiphar, over time, a couple of years, sees something in Joseph. He says, man, this, this kid, he's got some leadership skills. He's got some administrative qualities. He's got some management gifts. And so it doesn't take very long for Potiphar to put Joseph in charge of his entire household. In fact, he basically hands him the keys and says, I'm going to take an early retirement and you take care of the place and all the employees and all the revenue streams, you take care of it all. So even though he's worked his way up, up as much as a slave possibly can, that's that's, that's, uh, that's as far as, he, as high as he can go. This, this is what takes place. Kyler, Pastor Kyler, would you come help me now, please? So now Joseph is a little bit older, and he's worked his way up, and he's got this other coat now. And this is a coat that I would call uh, a manager's smock. It's as close as I get. I wasn't going to buy anything. So it's, it's like, a, like he's the manager. So he's got this management smock on, walking around. He's the authority. And everybody in the household knows that he's the authority. But here's where the story takes kind of a desperate housewives kind of a turn. Because in the story, we read that Potiphar's wife is very beautiful. Potiphar, who was um, a person of a high rank, um, marries a beautiful woman. I don't know how they got together, but he married this beautiful woman, and he's very proud of his wife. She's like, he's, Potiphar and I have something in common. He's got a trophy wife, and I've got a trophy wife. You know, talking about all the guys that are married here, like, yeah, I understand, right? So he, so he marries, so she, although she becomes now infatuated with this 20-something, this Joseph, who's living in the house. And she begins to make these sexual advances toward him. She pursues him. Now, the Bible that you and I read is a Bible written in English. It's been translated from the original language, which was Hebrew. Let me tell you, our Bible, the translation, is written in a PG format. But the original language was written in rated R. This wasn't just a, a flirtatious contact. She is throwing herself at him. But, but Joseph responds when she tries to throw herself at him. And so we read on the bottom of page 31 in your book, we read, uh, it's Genesis 39, 9 through 10, right in the middle of the big paragraph toward the bottom. He says to her, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me 
except you because you were his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. I hope you're understanding. This is pretty powerful. Even though she pursues him day after day, he doesn't give in to the temptation to have sex with her. Now, I really like what Joseph says to Potiphar's wife. How can I do such a thing and sin against God? Now, he could have said, it's a great perspective, because he could have thought, well, how can God do such a thing to me? I mean, here, my mom died giving birth to my younger brother. My, I, I shared a dream with my brothers innocently enough, and my brothers beat me up, and they throw me in a cistern, and they sell me into slavery. I, 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 my dad thinks I'm dead. I'll probably never get married. I'm sure I'll never have children of my own. How could God? But he doesn't think that. Joseph is faithful in the midst of his disappointment. Can you be faithful in the midst of your disappointments? And one day... Potiphar's wife takes it to a whole nother level. Now, again, this is beautiful female Kyler, but we're pretending that she's Joseph for the sake of the illustration because of her age. And, and so here's what happens. Potiphar's wife gets, it finds herself alone with Joseph. He doesn't realize she's in the room. He's tended to the king's affairs. She happens to be in the king's room. Uh, Potiphar's wife is in there. She makes uh, sexual advances toward him. He, he denies it. Uh, he denies her. And she really, I, this is where it gets very graphic, and we're not going to get really graphic, but she really throws herself at him. And you can kind of fill in the blanks. And he decides the best the best response to this temptation is to stand there and say, the Lord is on my side. I know that as I stand, no, he doesn't do that. He runs like a chicken man. He runs like his butt is on fire. And some of you need to receive that as a word from God today. When temptation comes, you run like a chicken man. Get out of there. And so that's what he does. She makes advances toward him. She grabs onto him. He runs. He even leaves behind the coat, and he takes off. Way to sprint, Kyler. Good job. Man, that even added something to it. Good job. And, and he leaves behind his, his management coat. Now she's ticked off. She's been rejected again and again and again. And so in, um, in, she screams, ah, and in come all the guards, and she claims that Joseph tried to sexually assault her. She accuses him of something he did not do. And here's the evidence. Here's what he did. Now we have a, we have a dilemma, and the dilemma is really, really really weird. And you might not read this in the Bible, but allow me to fill the blanks in for you. Potiphar hears about this. Potiphar has Joseph thrown into prison. That might make sense to you on the surface until I remind you what Potiphar's title was. He was uh, the captain of the bodyguard, of the guard for Pharaoh. What does that mean? It's AKA, also known as the chief executioner. That was his job. He had a resume, or excuse me, a job description. And so here's how the job description works. When, when, um, when somebody would uh, sexually assault somebody, they would have to be killed. And the chief executioner's job was to see that come to fruition. And they had to be killed in a certain way. And in this case, this crime, the result was that there should have been a hole dug pretty deep 
that Joseph should have been bound with his hands and his legs, should have been thrown in the hole, and they should have buried him alive. That's how he should have, he should have, that's the punishment that should have taken place for the crime that he was accused of. But something's up in this story. You kind of got to read between the lines and understand the kind of the background behind it. And now we know something's up. I, I believe that Potiphar knew his wife was lying. I believe he knew the reputation of his wife. I don't think that she could keep all of those advances she was making toward Joseph um, uh, uh, away from her husband. And so in order to save face, but in order not to, not to kill Joseph, I believe Potiphar had him thrown into prison. What drama is this? And Joseph spends the next 10 years in the dungeon. By this time, Joseph is 30 years old. 30 years old. I'm, he's been spending all this time, and he's in prison now, and it's, it's been, he started at 17, spent about three years in Potiphar's house, now he's spent about 10 years in, in prison because of lies. So far in the story, we saw Adam and Eve sinned. They willfully ate of the fruit, and there was a consequence that came. I mean, it was, a, it, was a, it was a consequence, a result of their sin. Abraham and Sarah, they sinned. Um, Sarah tried to get ahead of God, remember? And so she had her husband sleep with her, her servant, Hagar, and she got pregnant with a guy named, and, and had a boy named Ishmael, who became the father of the Arab nation, of the, of the Islam nation. By the way, who was Joseph sold to? To the Ishmaelites. It all comes together. So, so they sinned, and there was a result of their sin, a consequence of their sin. But now we get to Joseph, and he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't rebel. He was faithful to God. He was a victim of somebody else's decisions, of somebody else's choices. And you might be able to relate to that. How many times have you had to pay the, pay the bill for somebody else's sin in your life? How many times have other people had to pay the bill for yours? And now he was a slave. But what's worse than being a slave? Being a prisoner. So here's the question we reach at this part of the story. Where is God when we reach tremendous disappointment? Where's he at? Some of, some of y'all get it. To the one who worked for years to buy a home only to lose it to foreclosure or circumstances beyond your control. To the one whose husband left you for another, another woman. To the one who grew up being abused and now struggles with all kinds of anxiety disorders or, or, or cutting or whatever it is. To the one who takes care of maybe of a disabled family member and you're so tired and you're so weak. To the one who's endured what seems like a lifetime of not being accepted you feel alone, isolated, even in the midst of a crowd. You've probably been wounded since you were a child. Where is God when you're in the dungeon? Chapter 
39, you find a couple of reminders that were given. And the first one in chapter 39 is, is a reminder when Joseph was the slave in Potiphar's house. And I want you to turn to the top of page 31, if you would please, in your book, the first full paragraph there. This is when Joseph was, or the second full paragraph, when Joseph was a slave. It says, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Hmm. Then I want you to look the same chapter when Joseph was a prisoner. Turn one page over to page 32, right almost in the middle of the page. It says, the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success at whatever he did. It didn't seem like the Lord was with him when he was a slave, but he was. It didn't seem like the Lord was with him when he was in prison, but he was. And when he was in prison, the Lord, or excuse me, the warden took note of the exact same thing that probably Potiphar saw in Joseph. So the warden promotes Joseph in the prison. Then he becomes in charge of the entire prison. The Lord was with, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with, was with Joseph. Pretty exciting. Hey, uh, Matt and Kyra, come on up here and help me for just a second, would you please? All right, this is going to be fun. And, and so what happens in the prison? Remember, Joseph was in there for 10 years. While he's in prison, he's been promoted. And during the course, I won't get into all the details, but during the course of his promotion while he was in prison, he meets several people. And two of the people that he meets is, as he meets here, Matt, put this on. This is going to be great. Would you just put, you just put that on your head? Yeah, he meets a baker, right? Which Matt, is a, Matt would be a good baker. And, um, oh, he meets, he meets a cup bearer. So it's got nothing in it, Kyra. So it's, it's, it meets a baker and a cup bearer, all right? So the baker and the cup bearer have a problem. And Joseph's in prison, and Joseph is able to talk to all the other inmates because he's in charge. And they begin to share their dilemma. They're having these dreams. And I won't get into what the dreams are about, but they have these dreams, and they bring them to Joseph, and Joseph is able to interpret dreams because of the power of God. I believe it's the power of the Spirit of God living and residing inside of Joseph, and so Joseph tells them what the dreams mean, these people that he meets. Ultimately, uh, as a result, um, the, the baker, well, the baker dies, so you can go have a seat for me, Matt, right? On, the baker's dead. Sorry, Matt, right? Uh, my son-in-law, sorry. So, but the cupbearer gets a result of, 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 of the dream, and uh, the result of the dream is you're going to be freed from this prison, and you're going to be restored to your position as the cupbearer to Pharaoh, in other words, the, the wine taster to Pharaoh. You get to rub elbows with the, the top dog in the whole country. And so the cupbearer's like, dude, I will never forget this. As soon as I get out, I am so going to tell everybody what you're going to get out of this prison right away. And so the cupbearer makes the promise, and the cupbearer leaves and goes, thank you so much, Kyra. I appreciate it. The cupbearer leaves. But the cupbearer doesn't keep the promise. So Joseph spends two more years in prison. Two more years. That's what, guys, we think to ourselves, God, when is it ever going to end? It's been four days. How am I going to be able to take this any longer? And he spends two more years in prison for something he did not do with a promise that was out there that I'll tell somebody, and that promise was broken. How many promises are going to be broken to him, even though he's faithful to God? Then something happens. See, the cupbearer rubs elbows with, the, with Pharaoh and is with Pharaoh all the time because Pharaoh's going to drink a lot and doesn't want to die. Cupbearer hears that Pharaoh has these, this terrible dream and he can't seem to figure it out. So he's called all of the, the witchcraft people and all the people in his court that, that try to tell him what it means. Nobody can, nobody can tell him. And finally, the cupbearer remembers, oh, 
two years ago, I was in prison, and that, that dude in prison, he told me what it meant. So he tells Pharaoh, because he's close to Pharaoh. <laughs> Pharaoh says, well, go get him. So they go get Joseph. Joseph comes out. To make a long story short, uh, Joseph tells Pharaoh what his intense dream means. And from the bottom of page 33, I'd like to read this with you because it's a very, very important part of the story. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring, for, oh, this is good, from his finger, and he put it on Joseph's, is there anybody in here that's like close to the age of 40? Is there, Anthony, come on up here, please. Yes. Come on up, Anthony, this is exciting. So, so, so you, so, so, yeah, so he says he, he puts a signet ring on his finger, puts a gold chain around his neck, but oh, he puts a, he puts a robe, he puts a robe around him. And I just got to do this because Anthony, you're worth it, man. We're going to put this robe around you. And if you would just tie those little ties there. Now, now keep in mind, just to, let, let's, let's keep reading so you can stay with me. Um, he dressed him in a robe of fine linen, put a gold chain, I don't have a gold chain for you. Um, he had him ride in a chariot, that's not gonna happen, as a second in command, and people shouted before him, make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or a foot in all of Egypt. Let me just explain this to you really quickly. A few minutes ago, we had Ashley up here representing Joseph as a teenager. He went from a coat of many colors as a teenage boy in a foreign land of Canaan. After that, he was arrested, or excuse me, he was put in a, a, as a slave, and he became the captain of Potiphar's, Potiphar's entire household. And so he's wearing the management kind of robe or smock. And then he was put in prison for quite a long season, and then out of prison, he became the second in command in Pharaoh's entire kingdom in a foreign land. Now, I don't know if you do this when it comes to scripture or not, but I do this a lot. How in the world does it, does it go that Joseph gets promoted to becoming the most influential person in the most influential nation on the planet? Well, it's because God's writing the story. We saw it last week. God wants to populate a nation, so who does he choose? Well, the obvious choice, an elderly and fertile couple, right? And Abraham and Sarah then populate the nation. Now God needs to rescue that nation from the famine that is going to come. And so God puts into plan a, a, a prime choice of a human being that he has. And who is that? Well, that would be uh, Joseph, who happens to be a, a former slave and an ex-con. That's who he chooses to become the, 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 the second in command of the entire world at the time. And as I read the story, I can't think of a faster way 
for Joseph to go from living in his dad's house in Canaan, dysfunctional home as it is, to becoming the second in command in a foreign nation called Egypt than this way. I, I can't, he, it wasn't his bloodline. He didn't even have a passport to Egypt. How's he gonna become the second in command? God is writing the story, and when God writes the story, he uses the most unlikely cast of characters. And so, God uses Joseph to execute a masterful plan that saves millions of people from perishing, from dying in this famine. But the famine doesn't just affect Egypt, where Joseph's in charge now. It affects the then known world. Anthony, you can have a seat, man. Thank you for so much for your Give it up for Anthony, all of our helpers today. We appreciate all of them, all that they do. Praise the Lord. So here's the problem. This is where Joseph's family lives in Canaan. But this is where Joseph's at now, way over here in Egypt. And Joseph's family over here in Canaan, well, they have a lot of money, but they don't have any food. They can't even grow any food because the famine isn't just in Egypt, it's across the whole world. And so at this point, they got a lot of money in the bank, but they got nowhere to spend that money because there's not a general store or a grocery store around that has any food. And so Jacob says to his sons who are now much older, hey, I understand that they've, they were wise enough somehow over in Egypt to store up food in the seven years of plenty so that when we're in the seven years of famine, which we're in the middle of right now, they'll be able to have some food. So we've got money. Take my money and go over and buy our household some food. Sounds like a great plan. So they loaded up all the animals or whatever they did, and they started making the trek, the brothers did, and they get to Egypt, and they're introduced to the captain of Pharaoh's, uh, uh, well, to, to the second in command, the deputy Pharaoh. And the first thing they do, recognizing that he has the power to sell them grain or to not sell them grain, to, to sell them bread or not sell them bread, the first thing they do is they bow down before him. Shazam! Because isn't that just, just 30 plus years ago, the very dream that Joseph had? The prophecy has now been fulfilled. Here's the deal though, Joseph is, remember he was younger than his brothers, so he looked much younger at the time. How many of y'all know, but between the ages 17 and 40, you look a whole lot different than you did, right? Yes, and so they, they don't recognize Joseph. Oh, but Joseph recognizes them. And the story begins to kind of unfold. And there's so many layers to this story. Joseph puts them through a series of tests. <laughs> I would too. He puts them through a series of tests because he wants to make sure that they're sorry for what they've done, number one, but number two, but that now they respect and appreciate their father because remember they didn't before. Well, they pass the test, and, and we get to this place where there's this unveiling of the truth of the story. And so I'd like you to turn to the top of page 39 in your storybook. Man, this is some good stuff today. Then, it's the second full paragraph down. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. 
Is my father still living? But understandably, his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. This next sentence, I think that maybe God put in the Bible for me because of my kind of twisted way of thinking. Is that okay for me to confess that to you? Because I kind of like this. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. (laughs) Can you see that? Come close to me. And they're like, he's so going to shank us. I know he is. We're so dead. He's going to get me right between the rib cage. He's got to be angry. I, for, well, forgive me. That's how I feel. But come close to me. And he says, when they had done so, which probably took him a few minutes, you go. No, you go. But anyway, they came close to him. I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. In other words, he's saying, this was all a part of God's story. Don't be mad at yourselves for what you've done because God's gonna receive the glory for this. And then I want you to turn to the top of page 42. Come on now, top of page 42, the last part of this chapter we read. He says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Nobody, nobody knew this at the time. Certainly, God did not cause his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. Certainly, God did not cause Potiphar's wife to lust after Joseph and uh, to accuse him of something he didn't do and to lie to her husband about it. But, but here's what God does. He takes all of those decisions. He takes all of those sins and, and, he, and he works them together for good. He works them together for his purpose, which is always for our good. God redeems. It's not to say that God causes all things, but he causes all things to work together for good for those who have been called according to his purpose. He can take anything, absolutely anything, and use it for the good of telling his story through your life. Never, ever give up on God redeeming your story. Don't give up on that. He takes all the broken pieces and he turns it into something beautiful. So Joseph spent a long time as a slave. He spent a long time in prison, but God had not left him. God was at work on behalf of Joseph. And now in time, Joseph tells his brothers, don't be angry. I was reflecting on this in my own life. And I thought about this a little bit. When I was five, maybe six years old, we were living in Oskaloosa, Iowa, where I was born and raised. We were in the 70s at that time. My dad got a serious pay cut at his job at Firestone that he worked at a local Firestone store. My mom was an at-home mom, took care of the three boys. I'm the middle of the three boys. And our family was in desperate circumstances. Um, We had already been kind of broke, but now we're poor. And I know there's a difference. And, and, And so it was really a hard time for our family. And I picked up on that even as a five or six-year-old kid. 
My mom, uh, my mom and dad decided that my mom needed to get a job, but the problem was in the 70s, there were no jobs to be had. That was when the lines of gas were super long and it was a big recession. Some of you might remember or might have read about that in your history books, but, but nevertheless, it was a very difficult time. But my mom finally found a job at the local Kmart store. She hated that job. She was not afraid to tell us boys how much she hated working at that job, which, by the way, didn't make us feel very good that mom was working to try to support us. Just be careful what you tell your kids. And so my mom worked at that job, even though she hated it and she wanted to quit over and over again, she was still there 10 years later. 10 years later, I want a car, because now I'm at the age that I can buy my own car. Of course, it wasn't an option for my parents to help, which it's cool. I, was, I never even asked. I was just going to get a job. The problem was there still weren't any jobs in our little town in southeast Iowa at the time. And so how many of y'all know it's not what you know, it's who you know sometimes in order to get a job, yes? Well, my mom had worked at Kmart for such a long time that she had become friends with the human resources manager of the store. They sat in the break room together and enjoyed their lunch. Well, Marilyn, uh, the, uh, the HR person at the store, had told my mom that there was going to be a stock boy job that was going to come open at that Kmart store. My mom came home and told me, and nobody knew they were going to fly this job. And you're like, no big deal. It's a $3.35 an hour job at the time. But to me, that was a big deal. I've got some information. So I happened to know who Marilyn was, so I put on a suit and I went to the Kmart store with my little resume that had basically nothing on it, but I'm in high school, right? And I took this resume and I walked in with this suit on, feeling pretty snazzy, and shook her hand firmly and looked her in the eye, and Marilyn's like, well, you can have the job. And I'm like, sweet, I've got one request though. I was, I was already approved and accepted to a college prep program as a 16-year-old. Uh, for the summer. So I'll be gone the first six weeks you need an employee. Is that okay? I fully expected her to say, no, Troy, we got to have somebody right away. To my surprise and my astonishment, Marilyn said, yes, we'll hold the job for you until you finish the program. So I started working at Kmart as a stock boy, sweeping the floors and cleaning the bathrooms and stocking the shelves and doing everything they told me to do. And I saw this <laughs> beautiful girl in the housewares department at Kmart. Yeah, baby, that's where you meet the good ones. And, and so, and so I, I met this girl at Kmart in the housewares department. And how many of y'all know, I've told the story, I'll tell it till I die, that that housewares department was the cleanest floor of the entire store. Because I took care of that department, stocked those shelves, did what I could just to get a glimpse of this girl. Well, as the story would go, uh, we began to have a friendship and I wanted to ask her out. I had never had a girlfriend before in my life. I'd never had a date before. I never had anything before like that. I didn't know how to do it except for like watching TV and I knew I needed to like ask her out in the proper way. So I rehearsed it in the mirror, you know, for like two weeks beforehand and, and I, I had a plan. I stalked her. That's what I did. I don't know how else to say it, but I stalked her. I went in the break room because they used to publish the schedules of all the employees on the same one by name. And so I looked and I saw she's off next Friday. I'm off next Friday. Sweet. I'm going to ask her out. And so this girl, this, this young lady uh, was, oh, my job as the stock boy was at the, when the store closed at 9 p.m., I had to stand by the locked door. And every time an employee walked down from the break room after punching out, they walked down. I'd unlock the door and let them out and then lock the door behind them. And the last two out the door were me and the manager of the store. So I'm unlocking the door. You know how it is, letting them out and locking the door back up again. And here she comes 
walking down this long aisle toward me, which, by the way, would be prophetic of what was going to happen just a few years later. She walked down this long aisle, and I'm starting to get sweaty palms and a sweaty forehead and sweaty armpits, and I'm, I'm really nervous now because I'm like, uh, what's she going to say? And I say, hey, would you, would you go out with me on Friday? And she says, um... And I thought, well, this is a little awkward. And she's like, I don't know. I have to check my schedule. I'm like, okay. So she walks back, and I'm feeling pretty good as she's walking back. She's going to check that schedule. I wanted to check that schedule. I know she's off. She's going to be able to, we're going to have a great time. We're going to go out together. And then I started sweating once again because I thought, oh, no. What if she walks down that aisle and says, yeah, I've got to work? I'm going to have to quit my job. I'm going to move to another town or something because now I'll be totally mortified and embarrassed. But to my surprise, she said yes. Um, she said, yeah, I don't have to work. I, I would like to, I, I'll go out with you. And um, after quite a bit of persuasion, she ended up liking me too. <laughs> we fell in love, became high school sweethearts. And she went off to college and I followed her to college because she got a scholarship to a Christian school. See, she was a Christian and I wasn't. And I went to the secular university in Springfield, Missouri. And my first, my first weekend there, before classes even started, she said to me, she said, if you're going to be here, you're going to go to church. And many of you heard the story before, but I just got to tell you. I said, okay, what a good date opportunity. I went to church on August 29th, or August 28th, 1989. I gave my heart to Jesus, haven't ever looked back. We got married. Uh, we've had four beautiful girls. Um, we, we moved uh, we served at four different churches as full-time pastors until God called us to, to plant a church. And 11 years ago, we planted this church, and then we planted another church and another church and helped another church. And I'm pleased to tell you, I'm not ready to tell you where yet, but we're excited that we really believe that in the fall of 2022, we'll launch our next campus. God is really doing some great things. How did, all of, how did I come to be your pastor? It's because my, my dad got a pay cut 44 years ago. Because the most traumatic thing in that little family in southeast Iowa in the middle of a terrible recession with three little boys to feed that caused all kinds of anxiety, if that didn't happen, my mom wouldn't have looked for a job. And if my mom didn't find Kmart to work at, and if my mom, if my mom quit at year number nine because she hated the job so much, I would have never gotten the information to get a job there. And if Marilyn hadn't held the job for me for six weeks, you all know where I'm going with this, right? And, and, and what, if, what if I hadn't stalked this girl in the housewares department? And what if she hadn't told me, hey, listen, if you're going to be here, you're going go to gonna go to church? And what if we didn't serve at the churches that we hadn't served at? What I'm telling you today is the reason that I'm preaching this message today is because my dad got a pay cut some 44 years ago. It's in those circumstances. That's how God works. That's how he works things. To God didn't cause the pay cut, but he used the pay cut. I think one day in heaven, we might be having this conversation about all these insignificant things, and bam, 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 a series of light bulbs are going to go up. We go, oh, now I understand. God was used, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Listen, you don't always get to choose your own adventure in life. You want to, and I want to, but we do get to make a choice, and the choice that we get to make is how we respond when disappointment comes, how we respond when challenges come in our life. We all start off our life thinking that it's going to be written in a certain way, the white picket fence and the children that never, ever, ever backtalk. talk. 
right? We, we, we think it's gonna, that's our plan, but we don't get to choose our adventure or the challenges we're gonna face or the hurt that we're gonna have to handle. We don't know what suffering is gonna come our way, but we do know that in all things, in the good things, in the bad things, in the big things, in the small things, in the exciting things, and in the disappointing things, in all things, it's a promise from God. And so right now, you might think that the word that defines your life is disappointment, but God gets the last word. He always gets the last word. Don't receive that word as your future. Disappointment is not where it's at. God gets the last word. That's what we see in the life of Joseph, who is, by the way, a precursor to Jesus. God, thank you for your word. It's never going to return void. You're never going to leave us. You're never going to forsake us. You're a friend that sticks closer than a brother.